Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, and this is Phil Stevens. I'm back um, after a short, short break there. Um, I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild as well as the USSF Lifting Federation, and I'm a new father, Highland Games athlete, and... Oh jeez, a bunch of stuff. So busy man. Um, yeah. Oh god, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> understatement of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, instructor for Globe University, run my own business, uh, extremehumanperformance.com, and a bunch of other fun stuff. Yes, and I'm Brad Dieter. Um, I am also a exercise physiologist. Did my uh, PhD training out here in the Northwest. And uh, currently wrapping up a postdoc training, and then um, just recently started my own uh, nutrition consulting business. So um, we're starting to transition more into that. So I'm excited to be on the show and chat with other like-minded people and just kind of dive into some of the stuff today. Awesome. Nice. Okay. Um, well, we can start with a little bit of uh, news, I guess. First, I want to talk to Phil, though, because you know oh. we didn't get to catch up much. So, <clears throat> yeah. um, how's the little man? Good. Yeah, he's doing good. Um, all he wants to do is eat. He's gained. Yeah, he was little when he was born. We figured he was going to be big, and he came out small. He came out at six pounds one ounce. Wow. Um, but that quickly changed. So they're supposed to lose like up to seven percent of the body weight. He only lost a couple ounces. Okay. Gained that back in like two days, and then he gained a half pound in the first week. He's already up to like seven eight. So he's he's chunking up pretty good. But no, he's good. He's not that fussy. I mean, of course. He just wants to eat and sleep, man. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's so like eighteen percent of his body mass. He's just he's just gained. Yeah, that's I mean, fantastic. That's what I've been trying to say. I mean, like, there's there's people out there that would kill for the gains he's got going on. I know. I was going <laughs> to so. say. I wish I could. I wish I could get on that diet plan. <laughs> no, no doubt. The calories and, uh, per pound that babies consume yeah. is ridiculous. You know. Oh, it's yeah, insane. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, no, he's doing he's doing amazing, and you know I'm. I'm in the lucky spot. Mom's a lot busier than me because there's just things that I can't do that she she can offer him. So, <laughs> like when he wakes up in the middle of the night, he don't want me. He, he wants mom. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, she's done real good at. I'm getting pretty good sleep and stuff, and she's not getting too bad. She'll go three hours at a time, and you know, I mean, we're just, we're busy, man. I'm running all around, running two businesses, and helping with him, and yeah, I'm trying to train else. with and that hip. Of course, my my hip rehab. Yeah. So. And that's coming along. I deadlifted for the first time this week. Oh. Twice. So I did, I only did 65 pounds the first time and it felt amazing. And then I went in the next two days later and we put 95 pounds on the bar and it was really hard for me not to start slapping hundreds on there. Right. Yeah. And one of my clients was warming up and he had 135. I was like, watch out. Let me try that. And did that for a bunch of reps and that feels amazing. But I just got to play it smart. And mm-hmm. I'm up to the point where when I get on the bike before on the Airdyne, it, take me about five minutes for everything to kind of warm up and now i can hop on it and just go and so i started doing a bunch of like tabata intervals and stuff like that 
So it's feeling good, man. It's it's feeling great. I had to buy new shoes though because my old customized ones yes. just they aren't they're not going to work for me anymore. So yeah, they'll probably mess you new... back up to move exactly. the way you were before too. So, so get rid of them. Bought new lifting shoes and stuff like that. So no, cool. yeah, it's going good. Keeping busy, real Getting good. New clients every day, and so right on. Okay, well let's. Uh, I'll get to my one bit of news and and. Uh, Brad, you may have some comments on this because um, it's about partly about diabetes. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, this is my only bit of news this week that came across my desk. Well, actually, there's two things. One, um, it, it, it was just sort of timely that I saw this because uh, I just did a little interview with Men's Health, and you know, it's just sort of one of those what's in a pre-workout supplement kind of thing. And um, one of the things that we were talking about was betaine. And mm. sort of its methyl donor types of things. And I had stumbled across an article that was not specifically related to nutrition, but they were um, commenting that there may be unknown um, issues with some of these methyl donor type supplements when it comes to methylation and epigenetics and turning genes on and off and that sort of thing. And that's very interesting because, you know, I've been hearing about methyl donors as good things in as supplements for a very long time. And here, you know, because of the possibility of turning genes on and off, then maybe, you know, there's some unforeseen things. Uh, it's just one of those things so often, right, things come to market before we think about all the possible mechanisms and systems that they could be affecting maybe. But anyway, this one is about ep epigenetics and, and diabetes. Um, this is from The Guardian. Uh it says descendants of undernourished people may be more susceptible to obesity. Now, I think the angle on this is partly when we talk about developing countries like India that are becoming more affluent, right? And then suddenly they have this surplus of food and change in lifestyle. But it's not just. Uh, so bear with me. It says a 12-year-long animal study finds a link between obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Uh, and whether their ancestors were undernourished. So we did an episode oh, many months ago on individual differences, right? Not everybody gains mass as easily uh, as each other. Not everybody diets as well. And this is yet another thing that maybe your ancestors uh, influenced how well you diet. And it, it's interesting, too. It makes me think, what are my descendants? You know, not just my son, but generations hence has what I've done to my body, uh, you know, going to affect their, you know, uh, genetic uh, expression of different things. Anyway, this is by Monica Tan. It's brand new stuff, July news. It says the lab-based study found a link between greater susceptibility to obesity and diabetes and whether one's ancestors have been undernourished if it happened for multiple generations. Um, 12 year long study involved 50 generations of rats. I mean, wow, this took a long time. Um, followed by two generations that were put on a normal diet. The control group maintained their normal diet for all 52 generations. It says at the end of the study, the first group of rats were obese, insulin resistant, had higher blood pressure, more markers of heart and lung damage, and were eight times more likely to develop diabetes when they were compared with the control group. Uh, now think about this. They're on the same diet, right? And they, mm. what their ancestors did is really giving them a very hard time from, you know, I mean, obviously think about this from like a strength and physique and fitness perspective or weight management perspective. Yikes. Um, 
It says the lead author is uh, Professor Hardikar from the University of Sydney. Uh, here's a quote. He says, uh, whilst fed the same diet and calories as the group that were never undernourished, the newly well-fed rat population favored increased fat storage, obesity, increase of diabetes, and heart and liver damage. And it goes on to say environmental factors such as diet, including vitamins and lifestyle, have the ability to affect how genes are expressed. And this epigenetic makeup is heritable and, quote, difficult to fully reverse even in two generations of a normal diet. So, again, what I found interesting about this was the idea that some people who don't diet well, there could be reasons for this, right? Epigenetic reasons that have may have something to do with your grandfather, great, great, great grandfather, um, weird stuff, you know, and of course that's why the human genome project didn't cure all the diseases and really pay off quite as much as maybe we had hoped in practical terms, because of course the blueprints getting turned on and off. And it says, um, and again, back to this gut microbe issue, it says further research and understanding gut microbes, which are major producers of vitamin B12 in the body and dietary supplements with B12 and other micronutrients could reduce the risk of metabolic diseases in coming generations. They just sort of tack that on the end. Uh, So epigenetics in the news, I I consider The Guardian a a reasonably valid source. I mean, not exactly a peer-reviewed scientific journal, but um, I don't know. Dr. Brad, what do you think about that? You're a diabetes researcher in part. Yeah, and I actually um, do a lot of epigenetics research in the lab too, so... You know, it's really interesting that that study has actually kind of been a almost a natural experiment done in humans um, several different times in history. I know that if you go back and there's a somebody essentially looked at a very isolated group of people um, in northern Europe during the time where there was a big famine, um, and they found that it wasn't the the generation after, but two generations after, and it's called the grandmother effect. So. You know, when the basically when in development a uh, a female is being you know kind of undergoing embryogenesis and stuff, they actually form all their eggs then, um, and that those descendants did you know exactly what you're saying in this rat study, Lonnie is the uh, the humans of those descendants actually did have marked epigenetic changes and a risk of um, obesity and diabetes. So this has actually been seen in human literature as well. Um, and the fact that, you know, in this study, you said that they couldn't reverse it in one to two generations. I think that has a lot to do with it is it's kind of the, especially from the maternal side is those things actually don't get passed on for, you know, a couple generations. So it's really interesting that they're being able to recapitulate some of these, uh, animal models actually in human natural experiment right, so it's right really on. interesting yeah if anybody's list, uh, interested listeners the, you can check out on youtube for free it's called ghost in your genes and they yeah. talk about that very uh scenario with the northern europeans and there was sort of a crop famine or something and then yeah they were tracking what it did right G- you know both genotype and phenotype of subsequent generations you know what were the the health and the the body mass and all that sort of thing. So yeah, ghost in your genes and you on YouTube, you can actually check that. I, I'm, I was fascinated by it, but if you're geeky enough, that could really, you know, interest you, I think. Yeah. And maybe, um, just one more side note is that's what, those are projects we're actually doing in our lab right now. Um, and we haven't published these data yet, but if you expose, we basically take, um, cells, different cell types from humans. Um, and we've exposed them to diabetes like condition and, 
you know, after 24 hours of exposure, there's, um, there are epigenetic changes. So we actually see changes in like histone methylation, um, and access to DNA by like other proteins. So, oh, wow. um, it's, it's a lot faster than a lot of people would think. Um, <clears throat> now those changes, we don't know how long those changes persist after one day, but we're trying to work that out right now. So it's actually a really, I think a lot bigger issue than people are, um, aware of at the point this point in time so i think take home message for listeners if you uh have a tough time getting lean when you diet or putting on mass or whatever you just didn't choose your grandparents well it's your fault (laughs) exactly (laughs) okay i think that also goes to tell you how much important in my mind the the stimulus is to whether that be nutrition or lifting or that type of thing because you know you hear people all the time and you know obviously your gna or dna plays a role but we're learning that it's actually more and more plastic than what we think, right? So if mm-hmm. you give someone who's maybe a hard gainer a better stimulus training program, nutrition, that type of thing, you know, odds are they're probably going to respond, you know, better to that. And they're not just, you know, destined to be stuck at whatever their, you know, genetics say they are either. So right. the pro and con. Uh, before we get to uh, Brad's origin story, just real quickly, Iron Radio News uh, I am going to go harvest uh, and choose some of our winners for our summer contest. So uh, if you remember, we did a, sort of a Phoenix from the Ashes kind of thing. It was a tales of injury and, you know, coming back from injury. I've still got my cachet of goodies here, and I'm going to pick some of these um, people. So if you haven't made a comment about coming back from injury uh, on our Facebook page, Iron Radio Facebook listeners, um Please do so because I'm going to go pick those probably this week. And that's all I've got. Yeah, so I just wanted – I initially met uh, Dr. Brad now, um, initially at the Ancestral Health Symposium, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, just had been talking to him over the years and very fascinating about the research he's doing. And then also that what I like is that he also does training himself. So, you know, a lot of times there's people who are – you know, very good researchers, but in essence, that's their whole world, right? Their job is just to crank out research. And, you know, a lot of them surprisingly may or may not even exercise themselves, you know, let alone think about how does that, you know, transfer to helping more people other than just the research subjects in the, the study. So um, if you want to give us a little more info about your background there, Brad, and thank you very much for being on the program today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. This is uh, this is awesome. So, um, I, don't, I guess we'll uh, just kind of start with um, kind of how I got to where I am now. Is when I was in uh, undergrad in college, I was dead set on going to medical school, um, just because family is uh, medicine, and you know, <clears throat> being eighteen and being out of the house for the first time wasn't probably the uh, the best scenario for me to be successful. You know, just kind of at that young and not really knowing how to kind of function. So um, first few years of undergrad was a little bit uh, interesting in terms of, you know, all that kind of stuff and um, kind of lost my passion for that aspect of, you know, kind of the sciences and stuff like that and spent a few years trying to figure out what I was doing. Um, And then kind of towards the end of my undergrad career, I got, you know, I had been an athlete my whole life um, and just, got more interested in understanding kind of the the science behind the the training and the exercise physiology and stuff like that. And that kind of reinstilled my passion for all those things. So 
Um, after undergrad, I took a year to work as a strength coach at Gonzaga University. Um, I just found that that was kind of exactly where my passion lied. Um, so went back and got my master's. Um, and through that whole time, I was, um, you know, doing courses. I was figuring out, you know, how to become a research scientist. But at the same time, I was continuing to, you know, train athletes and work with people. Um, and then just kind of found that there's so much to be learned, not just in the books and in the research, but also to um, also to learn from people and working with people and kind of what works in the real world versus what works in a lab. Um, so that was kind of where the foundation for my philosophy of how to approach research and training came from. And then I um, stayed on and did my PhD. And during that work, I did a lot of um, cell metabolism work and how exercise and chronic disease like diabetes kind of differentially affect things and have continued to do that for the last, oh gosh, four or five years. And I'm right now doing a, a fellowship, a research fellowship while I continue to, you know, when the, the hours I'm not in the lab, I'm either training myself or training other people or doing nutrition coaching. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now and kind of where my, I think, future directions are kind of lying and what I'm hoping to kind of do with my um, knowledge and background is, you know, I think there's so much information out there, um, but I think it's really inaccessible to a lot of people. So kind of where I'm trying to put a lot of my effort and um, life passion is, you know, how can we take all this research information and all this, you know, valid science and get it to people so it actually is applicable to them? I think that's kind of where um, I see the biggest need in terms of how to help people at this point. So um, that's kind of a broad view of my origin story and kind of where I am today. Very cool. And I mean, obviously, we're biased on this program to, you know, using science and even experience and that type of thing to help push people in the right direction because there's, oh, man, it seems like especially in the age of the Internet, there's just a ton oh, of information. Yeah. And I often joke with my students that I'm like, well, you know, they get tired of me asking. I said, well, where is the source for this? You know, where where did this info at least tell me where it came from? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's so-and-so's blog. I'm like, well, you could write anything on there. It could be absolutely correct or it could be completely incorrect you know so it's, absolutely yeah you know if i can interject on that i was um i was just talking the other day about um we tried something in my strength conditioning class last year where uh in the lab portion we brought in the head coaches phil you might find this sort of funny or roll your eyes but um and the students were they were to tell the students what they did for strength conditioning because we're a small enough private school. We don't have a strength staff, you know, so the strength conditioning lies to on the head coaches. And you can imagine, you know, some mm. of the, but as they came and spoke to the classes, I mean, the idea would be that some of the students could positively critique what they were doing, but I was stunned. I was not running the lab myself. I was just doing the lecture part, but uh, I went to a couple of the labs and these head coaches, just what you said, Mike, stuff from the internet, from popular magazines. <laughs> and I'm like, and, you know, unfortunately, in a way, uh, they're like, well, we're national champions because we, we have a lot of really high end national champion teams. It's only a, a small D3 school. But the point being is, unfortunately, I think there's a validity issue here where they think they're creating these athletes. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, you just recruited them. 
You know, you've got yeah, a, you just have amazing talent coming in. Right. Yeah. Right. Your recruiters are fantastic. It's not the training program. So it, it even trickles into universities, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I don't, Brad, maybe you've seen that yourself having worked as a strength coach. But, man, relying on, uh, you know, because the education level of a lot of even university strength coaches, it varies hugely from, you know, oh, yeah. masters in ex-phys to just relying purely on tradition, you know, or the Internet, for God's sake. Yeah, and you know, I think um, one of the big problems is there's so few people out in the world who have crossed over and you know done both the the academic side and the training side. You know, and I think there's so much to be learned both from anecdote um, and experience, and then also from the actual research. So I think it's just one of those things where we need to have more people who value both aspects. I think they're just you can't have. I don't think either one by themselves is enough to get you where you want to be right no doubt uh fortress and i rob is a co-host he's on and off these days but we used to do uh, back before podcasting was even a thing we did an internet radio show called experiments versus experience and that was sort of the idea i mean it's always been one of our underlying philosophies you know phil's been all over the world apprenticing and working alongside some of the best strength coaches and powerlifters around uh and you start to realize there's a huge difference between uh, knowledge and actual skill. You know, we actually mm-hmm. did a program about that because, I mean, if you take a lot of these lab researchers and you put them in a, a life coaching uh, environment or a certainly a strength conditioning gym, <laughs> they're useless, Ooh. man. They are useless. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, and on, on the flip side, when I was at St. Thomas for a while, I had um, Coach Cal Dietz from the University of Minnesota come in and give uh, lectures to both the exercise science and biomechanics students I was teaching at the time. And, you know, I think Cal does really good job, very successful, I mean, extremely intelligent. And I think the students were kind of blown away about how much thought and effort went into each one of the individual programs. Um, Cause I think sometimes it's almost the opposite of, well, we don't know all the theory, you know, eh, just, you know, go do the Delorme three by 10, you'll be fine. You know, to have someone come in who's at a very high level and explain, okay, here's what we did. We did this type of block, and here's why, and here's what we did and didn't work. And, you know, I think that was quite eye-opening for them to see that, you know, at the highest level, there's a, a lot of thought and a lot of time and effort that goes into those two. Yeah, right on. I was just actually looking at some old teaching evals, and, you know, you, you get the the kids where something clicks, and I there was just a handful of these, but people were saying, uh, I really like how we talk about evidence-based practice, you know, and you actually, you'll, you'll put up a, you know, some references behind this, you know, like, where did this come from? Question the source. And like, like you were saying earlier in an age of information overload in the internet, I'm so glad that at least a few of them are catching on to that, you know, like you, your mm-hmm. eyes open at some point, I think in your college education, like, Oh, there's actually a source of more valid, more reliable information. Uh, when I first discovered that, man, I spent hours. Like it was in the Kent State Library. You know, Kent has a huge library, and I, the second floor was where the science journals were. And I'm like, oh my god, nutrition journals. Oh, look, strength and conditioning journals. And you know, <laughs> it was like this. I was mining, you know, oh. like mining gems. You know, <laughs> it was. I don't know. It was very eye opening to me, especially because it sometimes it contradicted. Uh, what the magazines or what even healthcare practitioners were telling me. Okay. Well, uh, having done that, let's go ahead and let's go to break. 
And when we come back, uh, we'll tackle uh, the topic of today, which is along the lines of, uh, of Dr. Dieter's research. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Weekly Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. What's going on? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry and Phil Stevens on Iron Radio. And our guest today is Dr. Brad Dieter. So thanks for being on the program. And just wanted to get some more information. You had talked at the before the break here about doing some diabetes research. And wondered if you could extrapolate a little bit on what it was you were trying to look at and what you found with that. Yeah, so our, I guess I'll just do a brief overview of kind of what my dissertation research was on. And um, one of the really interesting aspects of kind of the exercise science literature is if you go in and, you know, Michael appreciate this is if you take a normal healthy person and they exercise, and if you take a diabetic person and they exercise kind of at the same relative intensity, their metabolic response is, you know, drastically different, both in terms of you know, metabolism. And then also what we found was that there's a lot of differences in, you know, how 
the actual like muscle cells and heart cells and stuff like that actually functions. So in our research, <clears throat> what we did was we were really interested in how um, the heart itself kind of responds to exercise in, in diabetes. So we used mouse models of um, diabetes and essentially I spent, you know, a year of my life running fat diabetic mice on a treadmill, which <laughs> if if you ever want to become in a dark, depressed state, that's what you should do. Um, so, Did you get some of the mice that I've heard uh, did not even want to run so that they oh, had to put yeah. a little shocking plate on the back? And I, I heard from one other researcher, I don't know if it was Jen or someone else, was saying that they had one mouse that just sat on the shocking plate and just got zapped the whole time. Yeah, well, uh, I'll take a quick detour and tell you a funny story about running the mice. So, in our uh, the protein that we were looking at, it was um, the protein we were looking at was NERF two, which is kind of a, a master regulator of the uh, the redox system in the heart. And we were looking at a modification that's really affected by stress. So we actually couldn't shock the animals when they were running. Uh. So I had to sit back there and I had to poke them with a little. Basically, I had a yardstick that I would just poke them in the butt because they wouldn't run. <laughs> <laughs> and they were those the mice were so fat that one of them, one of them one day just stopped running and ended up falling over backwards and got his head stuck in the back of the treadmill and he died. It was like oh, it was a Saturday morning at like eight a.m. and I'm in the lab and this mice dies and I was just like I can't handle this anymore. Oh. <laughs> oh. But yeah, so basically our research we just we kind of found that um, if you take you know kind of consistent with the human literature if you. If you look in the heart and the proteins that regulate a lot of oxidative metabolism and then how your body responds is the diabetic condition completely changes the way your body responds to exercise, um, which you know I think is a really important aspect to think about when you are coaching people who, you know, if you coach an athlete, the way they are going to respond to exercise and a lot of the metabolic benefits you might not see with your diabetic clients, especially not right away. So, And how uh, is it different for people that are listening? Just, I guess, to, uh, to make it as simple as possible, the benefits that you get from exercise as a healthy person are essentially blunted when you're a diabetic. So um, whether it's you know the ability to switch between carbohydrates and fat metabolism or it's the ability for the body to respond to the stress that you put it under during exercise um, is really inhibited so just the whole whole training modalities of how you train a healthy person versus a diabetic person really need to be um, thought of a little bit differently hey dr dieter let me interject here quickly yeah Um, because like one out of four americans are insulin resistant and sort of pre-diabetic is what you're saying does that extend to them as well you know i actually i think it does extend to them um just as well and I think, um, you know, not to uh, not to jump on this too much, but the whole idea, I think, of, you know, being pre-diabetic is almost a, um, a safe word for people because once you, you know, the re- it's either you're, when you kind of look really closely into a lot of the research is um, once you start down that path of, you know, being insulin resistant, you kind of, you might not be clinically called diabetic, but the the metabolic dysfunction is already there, and so they operate, you know, the same way as somebody who is actually diabetic. And um, we we found the same thing in our animals. So, you know, when when they were young and they didn't they didn't have what you would 
you know, clinically classify as diabetes based on their blood glucose and insulin levels, mm-hmm. but they were already on that pathway, their response was already, you know, for lack of a better word, screwed up at, at an early stage of dysfunction. So, um, yeah, it definitely applies to people who are clinically classified as pre-diabetic. So I'm guessing that you're going to be in agreement then that um, even though left left alone, it, it's a progressive situation, but mm-hmm, uh, muscle contractions and exercise are very, very corrective in that to the point that I think you could reverse and get take someone who was insulin resistant and sort of metabolic syndrome and they no longer would be. Is that fair? Yeah, so it's absolutely you know it just it takes a little bit longer um in those diabetic people to elicit that same response that you want from a healthy person but what it does is it kind of conditions the metabolism to start reverting back to a normal state yeah i always think of it as more of a a continuum and i think like what you guys were saying too that you know you go into your physician and the you know a lot of times they'll just measure your you know fasting glucose until you cross over to that magical number, well, you know, you're not really diabetic. Oh, oh, you're over the line now. Oh, my gosh, you're diabetic. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is if they would have looked at your, you know, glucose and seen it escalating every year, they probably would have, you know, figured out, and a lot of newer physicians do, that, oh, yeah, you are getting closer to this state, you know, and it's not a nice linear response either. You know, you probably have underlying things that are going on, going on. You can compensate to some degree, but once you get so far along that spectrum, like you were saying, you can probably still correct for a lot of it, but it's a lot harder, right? If mm-hmm. you catch it earlier, do some changes, that type of thing, it's you can fix things, quote-unquote, a lot easier and faster, too. It's a lot easier to correct it earlier in, in the disease state than it is much later. I once saw a talk um, by Erend Bonin, who's a very famous Canadian researcher, and he was, just to bring this back to the resistance training specifically, he was talking about um, different responses in glucose transporters with heavy resistance training versus the usual cardio type approach, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into a discussion, list, bore listeners with glute one versus glute four and translocation and all that stuff, but the point being is... Um, what's your thought, Brad, about like if our most of our listeners, um, if a lot of them prefer low rep, uh, heavy lifting, and let, let, let's even push this in the ultimate, you know, to the left sort of, but maybe they only do 30 reps in an entire workout, but it's heavy. Are they going to see benefits in their carbohydrate metabolism, like someone with more of a bodybuilding approach, maybe doing 8 to 12 reps or somebody doing high reps or or even an aerobic athlete? Or are they doing too little volume to affect some of you know, the, the systems you're talking about? You know, that's a really great question. Um, to be completely honest, I don't know if there's any literature out there to support or to provide some evidence that we can actually use as guidelines. But, you know, I think there's, if you go to that far left spectrum, I think there's going to be a lot of benefits um, just based upon the way that you're going to be inducing a lot of stress into a system um, and making it be more plastic than it normally is. So I think anytime you you induce something that increases the plasticity of, you know, metabolism or, or function, I think that's really important. I think also a lot of the just the benefits of putting your body under any sort of stress 
no matter what it is, is going to be really effective in helping that out. I think the, probably the, the best idea would be to do a little bit of both. Mm. Um, if you are kind of down that disease pathway, but I think if you go, if you're just going to do powerlifting, I think that's better than nothing. Right on. Well, and I mean, as a coach, I mean, what you see too, what I've seen at least is most of the people that spend most of their time in that lower volume range, you have to remember they have generally have years of resistance training and a lot of muscle built up before that. Oh yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, they've have all this extra muscle tissue and that, that is being used and and now they're just they're kind of at that peak to where that's what they need. So, I mean, generally somebody that's carrying 40 pounds of extra muscle tissue is is going to be in a bit better situation than the average couch potato. You know, Phil, it's very interesting you said that because I, when I when I was still at Kent State in the nutrition department, uh, that's one of the things we were looking at. We took actually guys with lots of muscle mass, and we were looking at muscle soreness and eccentric muscle damage, and how it it caused a, a temporary state of relative insulin resistance. You know, you, the muscles aren't taking up the glucose and making glycogen as well, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's specifically why we chose guys that were sort of uh, you know amateur bodybuilder and carried a lot of muscle mass because it, I mean, if muscle tissue is the primary healthy recipient of blood glucose you know and the carbohydrates that we eat these guys are going to be different if all that muscle is rocked and sore Mm -hmm. i thought i might even see elevations not just in insulin but maybe even in blood sugar their actual glucose tolerance would suffer right because Mm -hmm. they have they're mostly muscle mass and the average person proportionately isn't as much on the skeletal muscle side you know so you know bodybuilders of course for years have been afraid of carbohydrate carbs make me fat you know, mm-hmm. and it just it, it makes you speculate, sort of, doesn't it? And I, I know the question's almost unfair, Brad. Like, oh, what literature's out there? Well, there's no literature on super hard training. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, at least not as much when it comes to some of these issues, right? Because it's a very m- tiny population. I mean, our listenership is a tiny population mm-hmm. as far as extreme excess muscle mass, like Phil, like we were talking about um, when we before we hit record there uh, about digging your hip out you know i mean yeah. clinicians don't they don't come into contact with that kind of yeah. muscle mass situation maybe excess body fat and it, again it makes you wonder that's one of the things i think would be a very practical line of research right which is let's just take some of these really heavily muscled guys and just document their physiology in different ways because mm-hmm. you know the the whole systems integration between muscle and organs and this and that it, a lot of that's going to change i would think I don't know, just speculating. Yeah, you know, Lonnie, I think that's a really interesting point. I wonder if, you know, you were to take a lot of these people who have, you know, basically an excess muscle sink is kind of a way to look at it. You know, if, you know, after their career, if they start to become, you know, overweight and obese, what is their predisposition to getting, you know, insulin resistance compared to somebody who carries a lot less muscle, you know? Does that extra muscle tissue, you know, convey some sort of protection against that metabolic dysfunction? Just because there's so much of a sink around, right? You know, I the, think that'd be a really interesting question. The flip side of this is, I think it's one of the most offensive. <laughs> listen to me, offensive, but physical <laughs> physical states that someone can be in, which is sarcopenic obesity, right? Mm-hmm. Muscles exactly. gone, all body fat. And that's very different from, you know, like, Phil, you'll play the game, you know, fat or powerlifter, you mm-hmm. know, and some of these guys, they're, <laughs> yes, they're fat, uh, over fat, and I'm not, that's not a judgment call, they're just 
you know, the body composition, they're over fat, but they have a crap ton of muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And that's not Mm -hmm. the same kind of obese state as sarcopenic obesity, right? And of course, listeners, if you're not familiar, that's just, you know, muscles wasted away and fat in its place. And that's, wow, that's just got to be a horrendous situation for metabolism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and even some of the work I do with uh, Eat to Perform, we've done a lot of um, body fat testing on a fair amount of athletes now. And, you know, that's one thing we we look at, especially, you know, athletes who are, you know, younger athletes and relative strength and that type of thing. And, you know, people looking for better body composition is, you know, obviously the percent of body fat you have is going to matter. But then also how much, you know, lean body mass do you have? You know, if you're, you know, pretty good body composition, but you're trying to get significantly leaner, and your income of you know calories is pretty low already, and you've got a relatively low amount of muscle mass. And it's going to be a lot harder, you know, than someone who's got that you know higher metabolic rate, probably has a little bit more muscle. It's going to be much easier for them at that point, you know, to go back down and get a little bit leaner. Right. I love Dr. Dieter's um, phrase, sink. You know, muscle mass yeah. is a sink for glucose. That's that's fantastic. I mean, if it, imagine like if an average guy's storing, I, I'm going to ballpark this, 300, 400 grams of glycogen in skeletal muscle. Um, you know, and I know that depends on carbohydrate content in the diet and everything else. But let's just pretend um, if you have much, much less, if you have 20, 30 percent less muscle mass, where are you going to put that glycogen? You know, your liver can only store maybe, I don't know, 90 grams or so. I don't know. And then, I don't know, does that just, is that just building blocks? Is is that substrate for lipogenesis then? You know, and all the carbohydrates you eat just, you know, over maintenance just becomes fat, becomes triglyceride storage. That's not a pretty picture. Yeah. And even then in some of the human studies, the rate of DNL, so de novo lipogenesis in the liver paradoxically doesn't seem to be ridiculously high in a lot of people either so it's like and i've often wondered that too is where does it go right where does it go Do you get tuned to just keep burning that amount of carbohydrate because you can't let it accumulate in the bloodstream obviously you're type 2 diabetic or that thing it's going to come up higher but and then do you have problems i was talking to brad about this the other day if your metabolism is so tuned to carbohydrates all the time and you can't, you know, switch to use fat very well, does that then further uh, push your appetite to go up, right? So now you have cravings for more carbohydrates because you can't tolerate them to go down a little bit because you can't switch to another fuel source and who knows, but yeah. Yeah. Mike, you've heard me say this, Brad, you might find this interesting, but we would do a classic uh, laboratory exercise and exercise phys class where we would do the crossover, you know, metabolic crossover. We'd, we'd have someone come in fast at a student and they would walk on a treadmill and, you know, mm-hmm. their respiratory quotient or RER is like 0. 0.72, 0. 0.74. Yeah. They're burning almost entirely fat. And then as you exercise with more intensity, you shift over to, you know, glycogen metabolism. But there was one uh, insulin resistant uh, girl and you know coming from an exercise phys background it was different for me to work in a dietetics department because I, I can't presume that all of the students even though they have youth on their side that they're fit you know so she came in and fasted at, overnight fasted first thing in the morning her RQ is like 0. 0.84 0. 0.87 wow. you know yeah. and 
I'm like, you ate something. You can't eat anything before the lab, you know? And so she goes, no, Dr. Lowry, I swear. And so, you know, I didn't want to embarrass her. So I, I just told everybody, I'm not sure we can demonstrate a lot of a crossover. She has, she's almost 0.9. You know, she's almost drifting into uh, substantial yeah. carb metabolism. And then she came in another day and it was the same. And that was the first time I really saw firsthand what you're saying, Mike, is that some people's yeah. bodies, whether it's genetics or epigenetics or lifestyle or whatever it is, lack of exercise, her body did not know how to burn fat. It didn't. I mean, you know, when your fuel mix is something like 70%, 60, 70% carbohydrate, even in a fasted state, boy, you know, first thing in the morning, I, I've seen a lot of people, their RQ, they're burning like 80% fat, you know, m maybe more fasted first thing in the morning, you know, even at a slow walk. And her body just couldn't do that. And just, I just thought, damn, you know, muscle contractions are my prescription for you. You know, you, yeah. we need to get that carbohydrate stored, you know, in that muscle sink, build some muscle, whatever, or like you do, Mike, you'd be proud of me. Yesterday, I actually did some um, <laughs> semi-fasting, you know. Oh, there um, you go. <laughs> I don't do that a lot, but I'm, I'm hell-bent on getting a little bit leaner. And like I said, I think that would be just do wonders for someone like her, right? Force her body to dip into her fat stores and get a little bit of lipolysis and fat oxidation going, you know, because I don't think her body even knows how to do that. So it was it was wild to see that firsthand. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's three pieces of literature now that show that at rest or I think 30% or below VT, so very low-level exercise, that the ability of your body to use fat varies from like 36% to like 90%. So if yeah. you pool those three studies, one was Helge's, one was Gadecki, and one was the one I did for JSCR in March. Um, so, it, it, But if you pull open most physiology textbooks, it still says at rest you burn fat, you yeah. burn high-intensity exercise, yeah. you burn carbs. And in general, that's true. If you're healthy. Like right. you guys were saying, there's, there's definitely you know outliers, and I think there's a lot more change that can be imposed upon that system that we're just starting to figure out now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mike, I'm I can't remember the author's name, but there's a very classic study where they just they took people and they had them eat a high fat diet for three days and measured their RER and then gave them a week off and then um had them eat a high carb diet three days later. <clears throat> and they showed that healthy people would just essentially switch depending on whatever they ate was what they were burning. Mm -hmm. And that people mm -hmm. with type two diabetes there was no switch. It was just, they were just, they had a, you know, I think their RER was like 0.82 or something like that at rest, just in both scenarios. So it's just really interesting that this kind of plays out in a whole lot of different contexts, whether it's, you know, training or whether it's just at rest based on what you're eating is your body's ability to switch between substrates, which is a really just kind of fascinating topic when you think about what that means, like what's going on at you know, the muscle cell level, the heart's muscle cell level, the liver, and, you know, all the endocrine system. It's just really interesting about all the different things that go into that. I was just going to say, I'm obviously, my research was in metabolic flexibility, so I'm obviously extremely biased towards that direction. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've always found that just, just fascinating. And even on a more, like, macro level, you know, what elite athletes right need to do in terms of nutrition and training to get you know those last you know half a percent or even you know tenths to a thousandth of a second 
And then if you scale all the way down to the other end, you know, you could probably take any one of us. We could eat, you know, 7-Eleven Slurpees with no ice for a week and we wouldn't have the greatest performance or body comp, but we'd still be alive. You know, I mean, it. it's amazing how much insult the body can take yes. also and still, you know, keep going. Um, so I always find that just just fascinating. Well, that's why for years I've tried to educate people, I think, that, you know, I call it the, the tortoise and or hare approach to fat loss. You know, the tortoise approach is, like you were saying, keep yourself probably like below 60% of your VO2 max or max heart rate, however you want to measure intensity, and focus on direct fat burning, right? Direct fat oxidation. But then you get, you see sprinters, um, by definition, you know, fat oxidation is not going to supply energy fast enough to support a sprint, but those guys get very lean because in between their bouts of tearing down their glycogen, you know, to perform, they're actually oxidate, you know, oxidizing fat and there's mitochondrial biogenesis and all this stuff in the recovery intervals, you know, when those mm-hmm. guys train. So it's... Uh, I always try to share that with people because especially in today's internet, you'd think that if it's not uber intense, it's a waste of time, you know, and I've even read articles <laughs> about how, you know, slower, inten- lighter intensities actually make people fatter. And I think we need to be really careful here, Yeah, you know, because, yeah, uh, I don't know. The, the truth is, I mean, like I said, it's a classic lab activity. That it's so reproducible that if you walk at a brisk pace or uphill, jog lightly. Um, you know, it, that's mostly fat oxidation in a healthy person. So I think a lot of people, maybe it depends on their genetic makeup or how they respond, but I think these are both tools that you can use to get rid of body fat. Sometimes direct fat oxidation is the way to go. Phil and I have both done like the morning cardio thing and I've gotten pretty lean doing, I don't even like the word morning cardio cause it's not even cardio. It's not that intense. You know, you're not going to get a lot of cardiovascular uh, tremendous benefits, but you are directly oxidizing fat and you're teaching your body, hey, burn some fat. Uh, and I, I think in today's internet age, things are so trendy that, mm-hmm. you know, people think if it's not a sprint, if it's not super intense, it's completely pointless or even making you fatter. And that's asinine. I mean, there's a lot of literature out there uh, on fat balance, right? Not calorie balance, but fat yeah. balance, how much fat you take in versus how much fat you burn or oxidize during the day. Uh, you know, and it's an interesting approach. I still think direct fat oxidation works. And I mean, if you ask any bodybuilder, uh, certainly the old school guys, that's part of the way they got ready for competitions. You know, they'd get down to low single digit body fat because they would do an hour of pre-breakfast, again, aerobic activity. And then they, it, it, you have enough energy to hit the weights later, but you also taught your body to oxidize some fat, you know, and for people who don't do that very well because they're eating carbohydrates every 90 minutes um, during the day, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that also plays into the fact of increasing like you were saying aerobic base and just the ability to recover right because I mean, most of the literature supports that if you're trying to get lean you know weight training at intervals are probably a little bit better from a magnitude standpoint but from a practical programming standpoint for most people especially if you're depleting you're going to get on stage you can't do that kind of stuff every single day yeah right yeah. so i've often wondered with the lower intensity cardio you're teaching the body to use fat a little bit more, but you're probably getting a very slight aerobic benefit or at least a recovery mechanism too, so that you are able to do perhaps the higher intensity training also. You know, where if you 
keep doing all the high intensity stuff and i've seen hrv data and people and stuff on that too and man at the end they just burn themselves out and they can't do much of anything yeah i think it's pretty clear right yeah strength gains and muscle mass gains are going to suffer if you're a cross trainer you know, if you're if there's too much, uh, I don't want to call it aerobic activity, but even if you're sprinting around and you're doing everything but, resi- you know, heavy resistance work, sometimes the combination of too much running and all this, like I said, you, you look like a cross trainer. And, I, and I've just held to that for many years. I, I've never really seen any information either experience wise or, you know, research wise that's going to tell me that. I can constantly go sprint up and down my street and do all this other stuff and super intense, but, you know, not really uh, heavy resistance uh, and just be jacked. You know, a lot of these guys, they make it sound like if it's intense, you're going to build muscle, period. Uh, Well, no, we we used to call those guys cross trainers (laughs) and they weren't, they didn't look like bodybuilders, you know, so. And last question for Mr. Brad as we wrap up here. Um, you said you were specifically looking at uh, cardiac and the little little mice. And I was wondering what you found with the heart, if there was any changes there that may be useful or knowledgeable for people listening in. Um, so like morpholo- like big picture changes or like kind of um, Just kind of both, right? Because I think in the strength training community, as Lani alluded to earlier, that we don't tend to think about cardiac support really at all, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously everything you're doing is cardiac in nature to some degree. Um, we tend to focus only on on the muscle. But obviously the cardiac tissue has to support that at, at all levels. And I'd, I've wondered at some point if you're doing, let's say, all more higher intensity stuff, does a cardiac adaptation limit how much strength training you can get in in a week? So for example, like, Purely anecdotally, I've seen pretty elite level, you know, powerlifters, strongman, competitors who have a very high aerobic level, and they seem to tolerate volume quite well compared to someone who has a much lower aerobic level or aerobic base. They just don't seem to tolerate volume quite as well. So I'm wondering if they're just throwing that out there too, I guess. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a couple things at play there. I think one would probably be, you know, kind of big picture changes in terms of, you know, heart structure and function. Um, you know, as you you can kind of dive into a lot of the the different training modalities and how they, you know, affect the heart. Um, you know, things like aerobic training kind of induces an an eccentric um enlargement of the heart. There's, you know, concentric hypertrophy of the heart if you're more of a a power lifter, things like that. So I think a lot of those training modalities can kind of increase your cardiac output just by like stroke volume. So you're able to pump more blood out and your aerobic base is better just because you have more oxygen delivery throughout your tissue. But then I also think that, you know, one of the big reasons that people have, I think, a reduced ability of an aerobic base is, and this is right up what Mike loves, is your heart is just it's like your skeletal muscle tissue and the fact that it has to switch between fat oxidation and carbohydrate metabolism, but it's a lot less able to adapt to the different substrates than your muscle tissue is. Um, And that when you're somebody who trains at a high level versus somebody who's diabetic is that inability to switch between substrates in the heart when you're sick really makes a huge difference, not just in terms of, you know, 
your heart's ability to pump, but also your heart's ability to just basically function at a normal level. So um, kind of what our research has shown is that when you are, you know, diabetic or kind of have some metabolic dysfunction is your heart just at baseline doesn't function as well because it has to run on sugar all the time. Um, kind of like Mike was saying, and Lonnie was kind of demonstrating with his, uh, his crossover experiment in the lab is your heart is also then running on glucose and your heart doesn't really like to run on glucose just because of the type of cells they are. Um, so when you're kind of in a, a sick or diabetic state, you just, your heart doesn't function as well at baseline. So your aerobic base is really, really limited. And that's really, I mean, it's just, if you just look at anecdote, like look at, you know, kind of sicker people, um, people who have diabetes, just like their ability to just walk around on a, in a given day, um, it's a lot harder for them just to function at baseline than it is for somebody who's healthy. And I think a lot of it has to do with the heart's just baseline function in terms of metabolism. Yeah, and I've always found that fascinating too because the heart has to be extremely metabolically flexible and it has the additional problem of the limited blood flow that has to be right next to it and it's generating all the blood flow mm -hmm. in the body. So one of the researchers called it sort of just-in-time metabolism, right? Yeah. You're, you're literally getting the substrate going by that you have to extract and you have to use and a healthy person, like everything, pyruvate, lactate, you know, fats, carbs, whatever, because you you don't really necessarily have a choice, right? And all those have, you know, pros and cons and that type of thing associated with them. So, but I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or what you would do for programming then. Just curious. I, I actually think I am an example of what you're saying about relative intolerance. And there was a long stretch there's been long stretches multiple stretches in my lifting career where i i did so much low rep uh work uh which is probably why i'm having so many joint problems these days i'm not really built for that but the point is i think i really lacked the aerobic base to tolerate volume you know mm. um in, in some ways it's actually hard to tease apart muscular endurance from cardiovascular Definitely. endurance you know because i mean the physical action is coming from skeletal muscle you know, to stimulate yeah. your heart, unless you're on some kind of a, you know, a drug-based stress test in the lab uh, for your heart. But th the point is, yeah, it's hard to separate those two. And uh, and I know Rob has bitched about that on the podcast before too, where when he did some of his quasi-military training and uh, police force training and that sort of stuff, um, he was screwed compared to even the total noobs that would come into the program right because not only is he like almost 300 pounds but he's 300 pounds of incredibly like type 2 even type 2x kind of you know muscle yeah. tissue he's got he's got no mitoc he's mitochondrially challenged and <laughs> and it, it, he become he becomes so um frustrated with the 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 thin you know like he'd see these young punks you know they're sprinting all over the place i mean they they're they're wussies to begin with but they're sort of in the neutral in the middle of this spectrum between power athlete and endurance athlete. So they can drift into endurance athlete if they have to. And Rob just almost after decades had almost no ability to tolerate that kind of volume or that kind of aerobic stimulus. And so it's ironic in a way that some of our listeners, uh, unless they do a lot of conditioning, dragging sleds or with the bodybuilding a little bit, maybe a little bit more uh, higher rep. And I don't want to stereotype that, but mm -hmm. they may be so far in one direction that 
they actually have further to travel to get that type of aerobic capacity and tolerance for volume. Like I said, I think I felt that myself, and I know Rob has. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Brad? Yeah, I mean, it's just the whole idea of it is just so fascinating that your body adapts to what you do. And that I think, you know, as athletes, unfortunately, if you want to be the best at something, you have to specialize. Um, and you really have to focus on one thing. And I think that oftentimes comes at the expense of other things. So like Lonnie was saying, when he's doing really low reps things, your cardiac function in terms of just an aerobic base is going to decline because your heart's trying to adapt to, you know, being able to force blood out when it's under a lot of back pressure from, you know, when you're squatting super heavy, you know, you've, you've essentially, you're almost putting a static pressure on the flow. So your heart has to increase its contractility. Yep. Um, and then, and then when it does that, you, you lose a lot of the, you know, a, the function where you increase stroke volume. So now it's like your, your overall cardiac function at rest is a little bit lower. So your aerobic recovery is a lot lower. So, you know, I think one of the things that people should do, you know, if they're deciding that they want to be a power lifter is, you know, like Lonnie was saying earlier, is do a lot of that really low aerobic stuff, you know, so go walking in the morning or after dinner or something just to make sure that your heart is getting another stimulus to keep it able to increase your aerobic base. Yeah, and that's one thing I've been playing around with is actually I I think I neglected my aerobic base for way too long. So now I'm working on trying to slowly get that back and that type of thing. And in a lot of programming I do for clients now, I've even changed where I'll specifically program and say, okay, Tuesday, Thursday, you're wearing a heart rate monitor. You're trying to get some continuous heart rate you know, range of 120 to maybe 140 or maybe even max of 130. You know, or just get up in the morning, go for a walk, you know, just program sort of low intensity type um, work. Because I also realized for myself, if, you know, I'm doing research and doing other stuff and online things, and I just tend not to get as much movement, you know, especially compared to where you're in college or you're walking to class. And mm-hmm. so I just started saying, okay, if I'm going to the gym and not lifting in my garage, I'll walk there. If I'm going to the coffee shop, I'll try to walk there. Yeah. You know, just getting more low-level ambulatory movement in, you know, and I don't think that's necessarily going to result in massive fat loss overnight, but I think at some point you have to do things that make you just a good functioning human, (laughs) you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's beneficial, you know? We tend to get so myopic with stuff at times. Right, specialized to the point of dysfunction in daily life, you know? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. You know, I think, Mike, um, walking is such an under utilized training modality i think it's just the benefits you get from something just that simple especially for people who you know kind of push it to one end of the spectrum is so underutilized that i think it's just something we should all start to think about a little bit more yeah and especially fitbits and you know watches that'll automatically capture all that data it's that's what i found has been the most useful because i'll look at it and be like oh i need a little bit more movement today and then if I don't have that sort of feedback, it's like, yeah, I probably didn't walk a lot today, but hey, yeah, it's probably okay. You know, <laughs> but if you see some super low numbers staring at you and it's, you know, noon, okay, yeah, I have time. I should probably yeah, go do something. Yeah. <laughs> Especially some of our listeners, are the really big guys, I mean, even at a brisk walk, yeah. they're at a heart rate of like 120. 
you know, so yeah. you can actually get a fair amount of intensity. You have to almost have to be careful, you know, um, if you want to stay in that sort of, I hate the term really, but fat burning zone, you know. Um, but yeah, even a brisk walk, uh, very handy, I think, uh, for some of the bigger guys. So. Yeah, I just started doing to bump my heart rate up a little bit more now as a twenty pound X vest and walk around with that. Yep, yep. You know, and it's crazy how even just twenty pounds will increase your heart rate from a low level by even twenty thirty beats over time. So. You know, that's that mentality too. Because for years I was wearing, um, doing the same thing, but I'd, I'd wear a forty pound X vest, or I felt like I was wasting my time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's that like <laughs> again, it's it's not intense. You know. Uh, I, yeah, you almost got to get away from that because intensity, almost by definition, you're using different energy systems. So, mm-hmm. you know, anyway. All right. Good well, stuff. Yeah, good stuff. So, well, thanks for joining us, Brad. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah this was great. It was a pleasure to be on and uh, actually finally get to meet you, Ani. So it's been it's been really nice to chat with you. If people want to get a hold of you, Dr. Dieter, where do they find you and plug your stuff? Oh, yeah. So um, we just launched the website. It's called AsgardFit.com. Um, so kind of like the home of the Norse gods. Absolutely. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You can uh, <laughs> you can go there and sign up for our newsletter. We, uh, we crank out emails probably a couple times a week, just really good free information. Um, we try to take all the, all the hardcore science in the nutrition world and kind of pack it into easy, actionable steps for people. So yeah, if you want to go over there and sign up for the newsletter, that's probably the, the best way to get a hold of us and get our information out there. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you, and uh, have a great rest of the weekend. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.